Welcome back to Tech Believe. I'm Dr. Nefarious. And I'm the Lonesome Comrade. And this is Tech Believe, and today we are going over missiles. So, oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I guess I guess the the first thing that I want to start here with is we're we'll start with the 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 top of the missile, the warhead, and then we'll work our way down. So there are three main warhead types of warheads that you can put on a missile. And that's the reason I want to start with this because one of them has a lot of misconceptions around it even when you start hearing so-called experts talk about it. So the three main types of warhead are, the first is heat, which is high explosive anti-tank. We'll get to that in a minute. The second is just your basic, some kind of explosive that is either high explosive solid explosives or thermobaric explosives. Thermobarics. Oh God, I love thermobarics. They're, they're so much fun. And the third is just a solid chunk of metal. And I think, I think Lonesome, that's where you're going to get, I think that's the one you're going to be interested in is the, uh, I'm already super interested. Yeah. The, the kinetic strike missiles, cause they are insane. All right. So let's, so let's, is this just the knife missile. Well, let me put it like this. Actually, let's start with the kinetic missiles. So kinetic missiles. Uh, such as what you would see on some old projects like the, I think it's the, was it the MGM-161? Anyway, these were missiles that were experimented on in like the 70s, 60s and 70s, maybe even the 80s. Uh, some might know it as the LOSAT, the line of sight anti-tank. And it was okay, basically, yeah. yeah, it was basically just a giant box with these gigantic like two meter long missiles on it. And, like, no armor, nothing. It was just a test bed. And the way these missiles work is just like any other guided missile system. They, you know, have a wire on them. They, got a, they have a laser beam riding system. Uh, they guide themselves to the target. The difference is these are missiles with very large rocket engines on them. And they go exceedingly fast. I think, uh, let me see if I can actually find the, the velocity on it here. You see. Alright, versus... Okay, yeah, so about 1650 meters per second. God and fucking damn it. Yeah, so... If that sounds like a lot, it is. So uh, let's... real quick, it's the MGM-166 low stat. Apparently, it was supposed to be deployed on Humvees. Yep. <laughs> I... Yeah. Oh my god. So the energy this thing puts out at at target is like ten megajoules, and for comparison, an M1 Abrams tank has like at most one point eight, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Don't quote me on that. So we're talking the it's energy equivalent, yeah, it, the, yeah, just the penetrator. We're talking the energy equivalent of five Abrams, like APFSDS shots going into one place on a target. It has it sounds like these will ruin your entire day. It has sixteen hundred millimeters of penetration. It will go straight through the front of an Abrams at its thickest point. 
well, I mean, if the Abrams weren't already useless, now they're useless. Yeah, uh, but for some reason, I don't know why. I can't find all that much information as to why these were never really pursued, I would assume. Uh, that it was for cost reasons, or they found something better that was more actually effective. Uh, but it was a fairly short project, uh, and I don't know of any other kinetic energy missiles that are in service. But, I mean, as you can see, like, they have great potential. Like, if they can go through the front of an Abrams tank, like, not much can do that. Like, very... Is there anything that can do that? Um, I, allegedly the Abrams main gun can't defeat an Abrams in a single shot to the, to the Glacius armor, but considering Jeez. the energies involved, it would have to be like special ingredient in the armor instead of being depleted uranium. Yeah. It would have to be like magical space metal. Yep. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the LOSAT was superseded by the compact kinetic energy missile. Oh yeah. That was the uh, smaller one they put on a, um, oh God, what, what they put that thing on? It wasn't a. It wasn't a Abrams, was it? Or, no, not an Abrams. A. Uh, was that the one they put on the Bradley? The one. Oh, the, the Bradley has a uh, has a box launcher with four tow rockets. Oh, okay, gotcha. And no, they no, still I mean, use them. Like there was like the the. Are you talking about the AA AAWS? Because I think that was. Uh, no, this is a this is a system. It doesn't look like it's been. February 2007, a T-72 tank oh. equipped with explosive reactive armor was successfully engaged using a CKEM at a range of 3,400 meters. Oh, that? I didn't know. That is interesting. So they are using them. Well, here's the thing. The public record appears to stop there. Like, I, I could do a couple of hours of research and maybe find a little bit more, but... Uh, yeah. Well, it has... Just has the taste to me, and I can't be sure right now. It's the taste to me of something that was like, "Oh, this is extremely effective," and then it vanishes. Yeah, there's a surprising amount of that that goes on in R and D, and I don't know why. I I want to. Uh, I will. I, it goes I, dark is my my implication. I I always just assume it's it's someone that's in brass that's not all that smart, that kind of just got there by like family connections and swept it under the rug because they didn't understand it. But yeah, actually probably the best explanation is the opposite of that. It's uh, the program was never real in the first place, but like it was allowed to continue to waft under the radar, getting funded. Oh, wow. So like actually a... they couldn't produce anything. So those are the two, the two basic options are that or it was so super effective that it uh like it vanished into some sort of like ultra high secret possibly supranational like group or whatever nice basically conspiracy theory stuff yeah all right so let's get to the the main crux of the of the issue that i want to talk about today and that is heat warheads so i see a ton of misinformation going around about how heat works. So, first of all, let's let me explain exactly how heat warheads work. So, you're familiar with the Monroe effect and the Neumann effect, correct? I'm not familiar with the Neumann effect by name. Okay. All right. So, there are two primary uh, principles upon which uh, shape charges work. 
The first is that when an explosive, a solid explosive explodes, it explodes perpendicular. In other words, the, the energy and the force is perpendicular to the surface of the explosion. So if you have a flat sheet, most of that energy is going to be going, you know, perpendicular and down. So it's going to be going up and down according to which plane you have the sheet located. And right. that is actually how what's called um, squash heads work, which are a variant of high explosive that are specifically designed to work against heavy armor. And the way it works is the, the, the projectile comes in, it squashes against the side of the armor. So now all of that force is going directly into the armor itself, or at least most of it is. So that's how squash heads work. And, yeah. what, it, and what that does is, if anybody's familiar with the, the concept of the Newton's Cradle, when that force gets applied to the outside of the tank, that shockwave has to continue through. And on the other side of the armor, once it gets to you know the, the, the last little bit, well, the metal can't structurally contain it, so you get spalling. So a yeah. squash your own head vehicle turns into the shrapnel going through you. Yep, your own vehicle turns into the shrapnel going through you, which is not even the worst that you can get when it comes to missiles. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I should, just as an aside here, uh, I once described uh, to an armor soldier that uh, they didn't tell you when you enlisted that you were entering a marriage of hatred, a specific armored vehicle. <laughs> and that's just one of the aspects is that it's usually the tank that kills you. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely true. Uh, surprisingly true, like this is a tangent, but surprisingly true is how much, like especially in like World War II, just how much of like the armor was just not available at any one time. Like it just kept breaking down and then you get like fires in the tank. Like your tank will kill you one way or another. Oh yeah. The Sherman was infamous for, uh, for catching on fire. Yeah. Because uh, we, uh, we didn't use diesel for it, I believe. Uh, that's like actually, we used a variant of, of uh, fuel that would just catch on fire. That's actually not entirely all that true. Um, oh really? Yeah, well, okay, we're getting off way on a tangent. I'll, I'll, I'll oh, go no, over... Please tell me this. Okay, so yeah, so they... So they... I don't know where that particular rumor came about, but the actual data suggests that the Sherman didn't pop off as much as any other tank. It just got the reputation that it did. There were a lot of Shermans. Yeah. Well, that could be it. That could American be it, too. Plane. Yeah. Uh, but like all the other tanks caught caught fire almost almost as bad. Like the the Russian tanks, the Ger especially the German tanks. Like they well, they all the caught German. yeah, just like just like the Sherman. Like it was just it's just a I think it was a propaganda thing or somehow it just got the reputation. Uh, I suspect it might actually have something to do with the fact that the Sherman was never really. Compared to the other tanks, the Sherman was never really in the shop, or if it was, it was not there for long. So you never really saw a whole lot of problems with the Sherman until it gets hit. <laughs> so yeah, 
Maybe that's it, maybe it's not. I have no idea. All I know is that it wasn't that much worse than any of the other tanks. It just got the reputation for being worse. So, Well, uh, there, is, uh, there is an effect. So when I was deployed, we saw Australian infantry units go by, and they all had Steyr Augs instead of having to use M4s. We were like, oh, that'd be super fucking sick. But of course, Australians fucking hate the Steyr Aug because everyone hates really? their service. It doesn't fucking matter. The army gave it to you. You hate it. <laughs> Interesting. Because I, I so actually... there's there's an effect like that. Like it's the marriage of hatred. Like I said, Sherman Cruz hated the Sherman. Interesting. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Okay, we are we are getting way off on a tangent. We should we should probably do a tank episode at some point. Oh uh, yeah. I yeah. Mean, let's... yeah. We, we did the mechs already, and you'd think the tanks should come before, but also there's going to be a lot of mech stuff in the tank episode, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, let's get back to, to missiles here. Uh, where were we at? Shape charges. So, shape charges, the explosive explodes perpendicular, like the force vector is perpendicular to the surface of the, of the explosive. So, not only can you use that to flatten out an explosive against a piece of metal to concentrate that that force. Oh my fucking god! Hmm? I know how to do this with with infantry scale explosives. Like there's a specific kind of charge you can build out of IV bags. Oh, there's there's a lot there. Like there were like IEDs that were made of uh, there were shape charges, just built from almost nothing. They're exceedingly simple. Ah, uh, yeah. So the way that you make them and the way that they work is shape charges have a conical cone of copper or other metal inside of them on, let me see if I can ha figure out how to describe this. So the cavity inside the cone is left empty. The rest of the cone is basically packed with explosives. So you've basically got a giant cone of explosives and a uh, conical hollow charge in it. So what that does is once the explosive ignites, it inverts the cone because all of that force is going perpendicularly into that copper lining. And the force of that causes the jet, or sorry, the copper lining to invert and become a copper jet. Now here's, yeah. now here's where some of the misconceptions that I hear come into play. Uh, the first is that it's a heat effect, which it is not. Uh, the second is that it is a plasma weapon, which is true if you're talking is true if you're talking about earlier versions that just simply had a uh, cavity. Uh, that's generation two. So if you ever see like a, an explosive that just has a cavity in it, what that's doing is it's doing the same thing as the cone. It's concentrating literally all of that explosive force, or most of it anyway, into a single point, whereas something like a the squash head will do it all across the surface of the explosive. So the, the cavity concentrates the force even more, because if you actually draw it out and do all those perpendicular vectors, they all start pointing to the same location. So all of that force is getting concentrating, or sorry, concentrated into one small point, and then 
obviously that creates higher pressure, which creates more force and more uh, penetration. What modern shape charges do is that conical cone, once it inverts, it is going like several times the speed of sound. It is, it is hypersonic. And it does that in uh, fractions of a millisecond. So we're talking millions upon millions of uh, Gs of acceleration on, on this cone here. And this all happens within, you know, again, fractions of a second. Within that amount of time, you can't really expect energy to melt an item. So, all of it, it, I hear a lot that this is a heat effect, and it's not, because there is simply no way to melt anything in that amount of time. What's really going on is that copper jet is going so fast, it kind of... It doesn't break the laws of physics, but it starts drawing new laws of physics into it. Yeah. So the metal, like a steel armor, has, you know, it's it has its strength, but strength of materials is not something that is always constant. If you increase pressure on something, then its other properties will change. And what's going on when you hit a piece of metal with a shape charge is that extreme amount of force is causing both of the metals, the armor and the jet, to undergo what is called superplasticity. And here's another yes. Yeah, and here's another of the concepts that I hear that is incorrect, and that is that the copper lining actually melts and becomes liquid. This is not actually true. The jet and the actual armor are in a state of superplasticity. They're not actually liquid, but they are metals that behave like liquids at that pressure. So that's, that's actually terrifying. It is. And the reason it's so effective is because once you get to that point, the structural integrity of the metal starts to become less. So now the armor is weaker, very specifically because the thing you're hitting with it with is more powerful. And that is the core of how shape charges penetrate something. Now, if you're kind of weak to the stomach, you might want to tune out here for a second. The effect on the other side of the target, on the inside of the vehicle, is... Well, let me put it like this. I explained this to a physics colleague of mine when I was in when I was doing my uh, undergraduate degrees. And he said, "Yep, that's a liquid metal shotgun." And while I can't say that the liquid part is accurate, uh, that is basically exactly what it does to the other side of a tank. It not only does the jet come out and spray out like a shotgun, but it also takes all that armor that it also hit with it. And also turns that into a shotgun. So the inside is basically getting pelted with, you know, tons and tons of debris traveling at thousands of miles an hour. You know, faster than most rifles will will fire their fire fire rifle uh, a bullet. So yeah, essentially what's happening is that at the very same instant you're being impaled by like glowing hot metal, 
the atmosphere inside your tank is getting so hot that you're being flash cooked from the outside. That it's too. hard to imagine which part is worse. Yep, uh, and I've, I've heard descriptions of what happens to people that are hit by this, and the only word that I've heard to describe it from multiple people is it turns people into hamburger. And that is yeah. an absolutely horrifying idea. It is not, however, as horrifying as what happens when an infantry vehicle gets hit by a shape charge if <sighs> that if that armor is made of aluminum. So... Wait, which getting, infantry fighting vehicle has aluminum armor? Uh, Bradley, I'm pretty sure. Oh, oh my god, is it from the reactives component, or is it just aluminum plate? Oh, no, no, it's just aluminum plate, so... Oh, my what, God, what? What, hap what happens... What? Is, How the fuck? Yeah, it, when when uh, the shape charge penetrates an aluminum vehicle, it actually does vaporize. Like, the, like the jet from the yeah. copper won't. The aluminum, however, does. And... Anybody who knows anything about heavy metals knows that it is not very healthy to start breathing in toxic metal fumes. So when a shape charge hits an infantry vehicle, not only are you getting the fragmentation effect, not only are you getting the high explosive effect, not only are you getting the high explosive effect from just the explosive hitting the vehicle, because now we're talking about light-skinned vehicles, but now you have all of that toxic aluminum fumes that are filling the vehicle. So it gets hit, it kills whoever's on the other side, and if anybody survives, you're breathing toxic gas. My fuck. Yeah. So, so I will say that I have occasionally said I wish I was in a Bradley unit because they were better than Humvees slightly. And uh, our armor was made of steel, which will kill you, but vaporizes at a much higher temperature. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Humvees are made of steel and Bradleys are made of aluminum? Let me, let me yeah. double check the Bradley. Brad. Well, you're definitely correct. There is, there's aluminum armor available on the, uh, like on the civilian market for like your Jeep and shit if you're rich. Yeah. So th they're definitely like aluminum panels on vehicles. Yep. But yeah, ours uh, led the. We were doing the Frag Five, I think, upgrade kit when I deployed, and it was like ten thousand pounds of steel. Mm -hmm. uh, the final upgrade package for the the Frag Seven upgrade kit for the Humvees, uh, the the vehicle by itself, way uh, without adding a single weapon, bullet, or soldier, weighs something like uh, seventeen thousand five hundred pounds. Jesus. Which means once you add all of the all of the equipment and the crew, you're hitting basically the load bearing capability for four axles that aren't made of magic space metal. Jesus, man, that is a lot. Oh, that's right. The hum because the Humvee is only a four wheel vehicle. That's it's four wheels. It's a truck. Yep. Oh my God, it is a truck. It's an enclosed truck. It's a gun truck. Yeah, that's what we called them. Well, you learn something new every day. All right, so next up is the one conversation I know that we've been waiting to have about missiles for a while now. 
let's start talking about the cost. <laughs> so, let's get let's ready start... to weep, listeners. Yes, let's. Um, it, well, it, any taxpayers out there might want to uh, turn, like, might want to uh, mute mute for a little bit. So, trigger warning: if you don't like children starving. Yeah, a lot. Like it's it's egregiously bad. So let's do some costs here on missiles. And we're going to specifically focus on the same general area, which is an anti-tank missile here. Uh, mostly because I cry every time I look at the price of an a of a AIM-9. Because that is absolutely insane. So the BGM-71 tow is pretty much the bog standard of American uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, how much do you think it costs, Lonesome? Like per just round? A, yeah, per round. Without any of the extras, just per round. Uh, I'm gonna say fifty grand. Uh, it's about yeah, that's about right. Uh, that's for the bunker buster. It's about ninety three grand for the new one. Well, so, of course, it has to be more expensive due to inflation. Oh, of course. Now, so we'll put that one on the back burner here for a minute. Now let's talk about the FGM-148 Javelin. Unit cost for it, $175,000, or about anywhere between two and four times what the uh, tow would cost. Difference between the tow and the Javelin is the Javelin is what's called a fire and forget and top attack missile. So what that means is you can lock on target, just like you would in a video game, Fire the missile, and you it's don't. Than a video game. Well, true. Uh oh, hello. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, I don't know what that sound was for. I'm hoping it's not my headphones dying on me. <laughs> and I think it was. So let's let's hurry this up here because it's about to die okay. on me. <laughs> All right. So javelin missile comes in from the top where the armor on a tank is the weakest, and also where it's much significantly harder to hit with a active protection system, or jam with active protection systems. So it has a far higher chance of penetrating the vehicle, uh, and also it is fire and forget, which means you get to fire it and move. Yeah, immediately is, fucking book it. Yeah, which is why the Javelin is what I would consider price not being an issue, to be the best missile in the world. Of course, by the time this comes out, I'll probably you know, be able to publish this in a day or two. That might not be the same. That might not be true now or then because missiles are changing all the time. So keep that in mind. But, again, $175,000. Now let's talk about the Cornet and its relationship to the tow. So the Cornet has a range on its anti-tank warhead of 8 kilometers and it is uh, actively guided just like the tow. It does not have a wire guidance system so it's wireless. The tow actually does have to have a wire and it is also actively guided. But the tow, uh, let me see if I can find the range on it, is only 3,000 meters. Now Lonesome, in a sensible, reasonable world, 
something like the toe, which is almost as good as the cornet, but less in every way, in some ways significantly, costs between ninety and fifty thousand dollars. What would you expect the cornet to cost? Eighty-five grand. Eighty. Well, it depends on which military contract you're looking at, but the average per missile cost is about six thousand dollars. Six thousand. Oh, so so like close, much closer to the cost of materials then. Yes. Now, I wonder why that could be. Why would the Russians have something that is cheap, effective, and ten times cheaper than what we have, but virtually the same thing? What could be the cause there? Hmm. I don't know. What do you think, Lonesome? I well, when did it, when was it ruled out? Uh, the cornet. Yeah. Uh, Cornet was actually 1998, so I can't really call this the Soviet Union being better than <laughs> yeah. America. But we do have the military-industrial complex here. So they hadn't yet developed a kind of defense industry of their own like we yeah. have. Although I do believe they've got it now. They do have it now, unfortunately, uh, and it did not take them all that long to do it. But they still have some leftover stuff, such as like T-72s. Uh, T90s, T80s that are all stupid levels of cheap compared to what we have. And I think most of that you can point back to the military contractors. The people that are basically lining their pocketbooks to line the pocketbooks of oh, other people. And when you start lining other people's pocketbooks and having your pocketbook lined yourself, that money's got to come from somewhere. And it's usually in the form of military contracts signed by, you know, senators that got paid from Raytheon. So, yeah, that is my little spiel about the cost of missiles. Uh, I, like I said, I could go... Incentive. Yep, I could, like I said, I could go into, like, the air-to-air air -air missiles. Just know, like, those are far worse like we're, we're so not everything about the air is more expensive it has to be yep. bigger than you think um yep. and uh things are going fast and like on a scale that it's difficult for a human being without like some special effort into thinking about it yep. and really comprehend so you have all of these missiles the air-to-air -air missiles from the 80s that have like supercomputers for the time considering how small they were fantastic computers since supercomputer is a technical term Yep. And, like, they're shoved into these. I mean, they're bigger than you think, but they're smaller than they you would think they could be considering what they can do. Yeah. Uh, rocket fuels is a whole thing. Actually, but, like, it's expensive like you could not believe unless you had grown up in the in the United States recently with the F-35 program and the Zumwalt program and the Stryker program. Oh, God. The f and the Future oh. Weapons program. I, I had almost forgotten about the Zumwalt program. I, I love. Okay, so I unironically love the Zumwalts. Um, oh, they're great! It's a boat that can't get wet, and it fires shells that are more expensive than money. And I feel like <laughs> I have a spiritual connection to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I, I love that. More expensive than money. I, I have to remember that one. Like, but, it's yeah. impossible to explain. Like, it, it's supposed to be able to fire in five-round bursts to deliver time on target by itself, which we can do with things that are too expensive, but not on this scale. But every shell costs, like, $250,000. What? Yeah, I don't know why they're so expensive. It might be like it might be that like there's a kind of propellant that only someone's friend can make because they've it's, got the patent on it. That's got to be like a guided projectile, right? Uh, so yeah, they're supposed to be fin stabilized and be able to like course correct for accuracy. Gotcha. Okay, that that makes it a little better. No, not really. Not really. Not two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth. That's like, that's insane. I think that might be underestimating it too, because my first thought was four hundred thousand. I was like, surely not. But I, like, I remember reading about this when I was uh, when I was in the, an engineering program, which I didn't finish with a degree. Um, right after we got a presentation on the F thirty five, which was real fun, I got to ask the the, uh, the the pitch representative. So, can you explain how adding the B variant to support uh, to support landing operations? That's the uh, short takeoff vertical landing one for the Marines. Yeah. Um, complicated the project. What they say to that? Well, they didn't talk for six hours about it, so they didn't give a good answer. <laughs> it was like it's. Uh, it was like, yeah, it certainly did complicate the project, and then like went for a little bit. And the gist of that was like, but that was what the customer demanded, so we had to deliver it. Which I mean, give take leaving aside why the customer demanded it and the the cycle of perverse incentives. That's about as fair as you can get as an engineering sales rep. Yeah. Oh god, this the military industrial complex just needs to it needs to go. It really just needs to go. Like I'm not like I've seen the 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 numbers flown around that the United States military is you know, has ten times the budget of any other military on earth. I gotta be honest, I'm oh. not sure that's not necessary given how much we're overcharged for for shit like it's absolutely insane so i've got a i've i've got an explanation for this and it's that the vast majority of physical and software goods purchased by the united states department are warehoused and then never used and then destroyed at the end of their uh, their store their like shelf date because they can't be recycled or repurposed because they're classified. Uh. Um, my source for this is, sadly, that I've been posting on the Something Awful forums for a very long time. And obviously, once I got out of the military, I was in there. I was in the military section of the forums, and we had people who were like contractors as well. And like we just got these stories about all this shit. It's just very open. Like there's, so we're literally just we're literally just buying stuff to pay contractors with and just sitting it let, letting it sit in a warehouse. Yeah, the term for this is military Keynesianism, and more or less what happened is I'm, that after World War II, I have learned a new term today and one I am not yeah. comfortable with. That is insane. So after World War II before uh, we started the Korean War. And like, I've got a whole, there's an entire sub-series of a, a podcast uh, called When Diplomacy Fails that analyzes the Korean War. And the host comes to the conclusion that uh, 
both communists and America accidentally colluded to cause a like raging genocidal conflict there due to policy goals. And ours was basically that it, the conclusion had been reached that the economy wouldn't keep getting better. The number wouldn't keep going up unless we kept spending at wartime rates. And we had worked out during World War II how to spend at wartime rates because like all of the things like the bond programs, uh, the war bond programs collapsing and stuff, they had to work out economic tricks to be able to keep the war going because it was an existential threat. Oh, and wow. then it wasn't an existential threat anymore, but but, but the money was good. Rich. Yeah. Oh, so that's... more or less, like the there's a period where the Cold War might not have started really it's like it's brief and it's like it's hard to without what? having more preparation to go into it i wouldn't want to go into it in too much detail but basically yeah. what i mean is if the uh, if like the key leaders on both sides hadn't been personally determined to cause the cold war because there's evidence that stalin had a plan to go through the folded gap uh, the year after he drank himself to death and that the, uh, the Red Army had been building up for it the whole time. Oh, oh, wow. Yes. Oh, wow. That is... Okay, that's scary. Because that well, I didn't know. You see, the U.S. had, had demonstrated like some, some uh, missile capabilities and some other things, and the Russians uh, were working on the bomb, but they didn't have it yet. And the idea was that there's never going to be a better time in terms of what NATO can do or proto-NATO uh, with nuclear weapons than now. And so wow. there's an optimum intersection between the curve of us preparing and them preparing. And Stalin just happened to, to like eating and drinking too much. <laughs> oh, God, humans. Why, why, why we do this to ourselves? How have humans survived so long? Without killing like ourselves. it makes sense if if you're the kind of like magnificent like gangster who turns into Stalin. Stalin. Like it makes sense from a strategic calculus. Like there's never going to be a better time than now, and we just have to get ready for it because all of our industry was recently annihilated, and what wasn't annihilated was like picked up and moved. Yep. Absolutely insane. I feel like that was a tame. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, so we start the Korean War, like the Cold War gets drummed up through propaganda, we get the beginning of like the mass media uh, terror complex. Uh, and then, um, like, and then we uh, go through a series of like policy and diplomatic maneuvers to cause the Korean War and make it as bad as it was. Because the beginning of the Korean War, South Korea was just gonna get curb stomped. Um, because the U.S. policy had been to withhold forces and support from South Korea so that they would be a more tempting target. Oh, wow. And so if we hadn't done, uh, we hadn't done the, the landings at uh, Incheon and done like the Busan perimeter shit, which are two of the most awful battles in the history of the U.S. Army, uh, there just wouldn't have been a South Korea. And instead, what happened was uh, like a war of extermination on our part, where we like to technically deniably, but deliberately, like and repeatedly bombed civilian targets in order to just kill North Koreans. Didn't Eisenhower and, like 
uh, or not Eisenhower, um, who was president at the time? Was that Truman? No, Truman was the one who dropped the bomb right after FDR. Okay. Didn't they, didn't they, one of the generals, like, have a plan to nuke Korea at one point? Okay, so, I, I, uh, I think Eisenhower might have been president when this happened, but the general you're thinking of is MacArthur. Ah, gotcha. Um, so, like, well, I was leading to, like, and then, like, when, once the, uh, once the perimeters were established and we started being able to, to land, uh, uh, I Corps, First Corps, which became like a, a UN Unified Command, almost the size of an army group. Um, so we started pushing the North Koreans north because, like, we had numbers and logistics uh, on them, and the Chinese didn't want to get troops directly involved. Although they had entire divisions of volunteers with patch switches, and nice. then once we almost had, once we controlled almost all of North Korea, there were. Um, there were sites, some of which were uh, just military rallying points for North Korean units that had like uh, that were falling back. Some of which were refugee camps where soldiers that had lost their units or officers went because there were people there. And uh, regardless, we were hitting them with uh, with uh, like long range artillery. Basically, so we were shelling the inside of China. Wait, wait, wait! We were shelling inside China. This is yes. This is the course of events that actually happened, and then I'll go into the nuclear stuff, uh, which caused uh, the Chinese to uh, to enter uh, into the war uh, formally after like some time, I believe a week or so, of like demanding, "Well, would you please, would you please stop shelling <laughs> at least these targets? These are the refugee camps." Oh, oh, we were we were hitting refugee camps. Well, there were some soldiers going to them, Doc. Uh, that makes them military targets. Oh, that's so horrible. Are, yeah. are we the baddies? Uh, oh, God. I believe it's the mission, unironically, of the remainder of my life to point out to as many people as possible that we are, in fact, the baddies. Oh god! Oh shit! I just got another beep in my headphone, so I am running quickly, running out of battery here. Let me get uh, to uh, the the rest of that we were, of what we were trying to get through here. Uh, I do want to get to uh, protection systems and ways to defend yourselves against missiles. Uh, we could do a part two. Uh, say that one more time. We could do a part two. Oh, that is a good point. Yes, continue. We'll do a part two. Uh, if you, I mean, you could give the, the quick list of topics if you wanted before we go or whatever. No, no, no. Uh, we'll, we'll do a part two on missile defense. I, I want to hear the rest of the story. Okay. So, um, so yeah, the Chinese get involved uh, with uh, something like 20 divisions uh, coming across the front and air support. So there's, there's MiGs. We're now, we're now in everything but a shooting war with China. Like, well, no. We are in a shooting war with China that's basically undeclared. It's it's a proxy war, but where you uh, like U.S. and NATO jets are shooting down Chinese jets. Oh wait a minute, is this okay? So this would be the Korean War. Correct. Yeah, we're talking the, about the Korean War. Would this be the Republic of China of China or the People's Republic of China? That's the PRC. Okay, so they were they were the communists at that point. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Continue. Well, that's why it's carefully undeclared because 
like China was always willing to go to war with its neighbors and never really willing to go to war like overseas after in modern history. Uh, Chinese history is fucking incredible. Anyone who doesn't know about it should like read about like the old Chinese history and their naval exploits. Yeah. Incredible stuff. But so what MacArthur had a plan for was so there's always contingency plans like this. There's a bunch of contingency plans for every nation's like how we would we would target them with our nukes. Like there's whole staffs of people who update these things based on intelligence reports about like new reactors being built or whatever. Um, however, like MacArthur's specific plan that he was continuously sending uh, to the office of the president was that uh, we should use we should uh, deploy nuclear devices to create basically a beaten zone or a dead zone along the the Chinese North Korean border, so that the North Koreans couldn't continue to retreat. For like a while, I don't believe we were fully aware of fallout at the time, uh, so we like, but uh, oh, that okay. would have been pitched also. Like, we'll be poisoning their troops also. Uh, oh, that no, would no. in fact put the we... blast uh, zones into Chinese territory. Oh, and we... when China started mobilizing, uh, like, like army, like an army group, basically to come in, into the fight, MacArthur wanted to use the same technique, but like more densely sown, essentially, like as uh, as like mines to catch all the Chinese at once. Oh, wow. And yeah, they, they actually did know about fallout at this time. So he was, he was literally just proposing creating a, a nuclear dead zone. That is horrible on levels. I can't even imagine. MacArthur isn't even the worst, uh, like general officer in terms of wanting to deploy strategic weapons. Oh my god, that's so horrible. Like there's like there's like just nuking like whole regions horrible. And then there's intentionally just making land unoccupiable from anyone level of horrible. Like that's well, what if we What if we turn Korea into an island by blasting a nuclear trench? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could actually do that though. Uh, no, uh, you absolutely could. You should look up the Plowshare program if you don't know what it is. Oh, that sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, well, what if we... Uh, so, nukes go bad eventually. What if we had a program to use them for civilian reasons, like on a rotation once they're old enough that they need to be replaced? You know, under the right... No, no, because you're still going to no. have all that fallout. You can't There's get around the fallout. Not. Like, so it's the kind of thing, for instance, if we were establishing, uh, say, like mining operations on Mars and we didn't intend to ever like create an atmosphere because the magnetosphere, we wouldn't actually do that. Yeah. Um, like an option would be to like uh, to do like initial carve outs of mining areas or something with nukes because the fallout from our pissant warheads is fucking nothing compared to what's getting through the no magnetosphere thin atmosphere of mars yeah so everyone on the surface is going to need to be shielded anyway yeah like that's so like that's your like near future if we had a future possible uh, yeah. usage like for nuclear weapons other than the orion project which <laughs> i want to ride an orion rocket oh god which one is the right orion is that the new uh, nasa one no, no, no. It's uh it's the uh, the interplanetary drive that uh runs by detonating nukes in a cavern. 
Oh, that one. That one was a fun one. That was, that's from the 70s, isn't it? Yeah, the yeah, I mean, I would not be shocked to find that it like the the idea was proposed as part of the Plowshare grant program. Nice. God, I love nukes. Okay, uh, F, 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 Steve at the FBI, that is not that is not a threat. <laughs> I'm just a fi- I just have my degree in physics. Chill. Chill the fuck out, Doctor Han. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So, uh, continue with the the story here. <laughs> Sorry about oh, that. It was just like basically. So MacArthur continued insisting on doing this until uh, the president relieved him. Which? Oh wow! He actually removed him, like from from service. Yes. Wow. He was directed to resign. That I didn't know. Well, so at least... just for context. Uh, uh, General MacArthur, in addition to being an insane maniac, was uh, one of a relatively limited number of five-star generals. Uh, he served during World War II with distinction, which is partially what got him, like got him the ability to use the influence he had to become a general officer. Wow. Um, a five-star general uh, that rank can only be uh, can only be uh, authorized for the United States uh, uh, Army when the Department of Defense now has more than uh, 5 million uniformed service members. Oh, wow. That I didn't know. That's So the the number of generals that you can have, like, or the number of stars that we can have is dependent on, like, troop strength? Uh, only for this one. Uh, the five-star oh. general is uh, the U.S. equivalent of a field marshal in European uh, his- historical uh, connotation. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So instead of doing it by just having it be a wartime position, they do it by number of troops. Well, you, so the theory is that the Department of Defense will never have more than 5 million troops under arms unless we're at a serious, like, world-scale war. I think gotcha. that it, I'm not even sure if that happened during World War One. I. I think it may only have happened during World War II. Yeah, I think, I think now we only have, like, a million or something active troops. 400,000 in the active army component. Yeah, uh, yeah. They dropped a little bit. Yeah, 100,000. And every other component except active navy is smaller. Yeah. Wait, we only have 100,000? What? Really? We don't, like... We don't have... Because we spend we spend most of the money that we spend on the military on giving it to like our buddies instead of getting something out of it, we don't have actually the equipment or the infrastructure or the funding to have a military much larger than the one we have right now. You can tell because ours isn't larger. Okay, this uh, this is a this is a tangent, but I just I just went to the U, the the United States Armed Forces page on Wikipedia. And I, I had forgotten this had happened. Why? Why are there six medallions here? Why? Why do we have six branches now? <laughs> what is this? Is this the space force? It is the space force. <laughs> the space force is still a thing. Oh God, that's still a thing. Like Biden didn't get rid of that. Oh my God. No. What? Okay. So the reason we still have a Marine Corps instead of having a component, like a subcomponent of the army that works with a Navy that's just yeah. wet soldiers, is so that there could be more general officer positions. And more opportunities for contracts. The Marine Corps is solely responsible uh, for 
uh, something like 30 to 40% of the bloat on the F-35 pro uh, project just from requiring the stowable variant. The Marine Corps also insisted on developing an, uh, the Osprey, a uh, aircraft that is that kills our service people more consistently than any other piece of equipment, I think, that I've, I've ever heard of. How, okay, how much, if we were to actually get rid of all of this corruption, how much would we actually need to keep a military the size that we have decently equipped? If we Is wanted it, to maintain the current fleet and the current troop levels, but, say, double all of the spending on uh, things... That they like on their operational budgets to increase uh, to like increase their maintenance levels and their readiness levels. Yeah, and then we also wanted to uh, uh, go to triple and use that portion just to recondition equipment, like specifically as a fund to recondition equipment that's in repair. Mm -hmm. I would say that we could probably spend ten to fifteen percent of what we are right now. Jesus, not Christ. including. Not including uh, like active operations; those are in a separate budget category even now. So we don't even really, really have a military that's more powerful than anything else. We just spend more. Uh, it is also okay. So this depends on components, uh, but we do also have uh, the largest carrier fleet that's the size of I think the next six carrier fleets put together. Um, okay, that's, there's that's a thing big. about readiness there, uh, which is that we only have about two and two thirds total uh, air groups of carrier equipped planes that work. Um, there are every every carrier does have its own group, and most of them are hangar queens. Wait, wait. So our the fighters on our aircraft carriers don't even work. Uh, some of them do, but they're also um, they're also all designs that like were uh, that are from the 70s and 80s when they went into production some of them um, no one makes anymore so we have to commission like we have to commission uh park it basically yeah we are insisting on keeping like an old camaro or whatever in perfect condition so we have to contract our own uh, auto parts supplier and manufacturer to gotcha. make custom art for us but we can do that because we control patents Gotcha. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the thing about the thing about the major recent uh, uh, aircraft developments, the the F twenty two until recently is possibly the best air superiority fighter ever made. Other considerations aside. Yep. Um, now those considerations are that it costs something like forty thousand dollars a minute in fuel to to fly. Ooh. And um, oh. like it is capable of performing maneuvers that will absolutely kill any human yeah. reaching like basically the edge of uh, like the edge of like um, whatever you'd call dog ability when it's taking over 15 miles with guided weapons oh wow but no one's ever going to do that again because before anyone gets involved in a partner parity conflict they're they're going to develop air superiority drones yeah, that's that's probably not too far too far in the future. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen that to more of a degree yet. 
And I don't know I why. I am pretty sure that it just hasn't, like, this is the kind of thing that doesn't go public. Because there's no way we haven't been working on it. True, true. I mean, like, we have that, been working on it publicly, but with an ostentatious focus on, on uh, like, ground air support. Yeah. Or close air support. Well, here's, here's the thing, uh, because I, I, I have this uh, game called Ace Combat 7. Uh, mm. is it, or is it Ace Combat 8? Anyway, it's the one for the PC. And the initial conflict from that whole game starts off with one of, one of the nations launching a surprise attack on the other. Yeah. And the way they do that is they have, like, hordes of drones. Like, just hordes of them. All yeah. put into container ships. Like, yeah. inside, like, those, like, the containers. Like, those are, like, the hangars. And they launch those in one fell swoop. They lock out pretty much all of the military bases, all of the air bases, and all of the uh, uh, naval bases. Well, maybe not all, but a significant chunk of them. So that leaves your team, your side, basically reeling from that disaster. And that's how the game starts. Yeah, nice. So drones, folks, the way of the yeah. future. Well, and like for all purposes, like because a computer can take much more G's than a human can, but also yeah. because like a human or like a servo mechanical tank crew inside a very small drone tank yep. could potentially continue functioning if they get hit with spalling. Yeah, and not, not to mention like once you get rid of the human component and reduce that down to a computer, you're reducing the need for everything that you have significantly because now you don't have to have a cockpit you don't have to have you know you don't have to carry the human you don't have to have all that space that was in the cockpit which means your system can be smaller so now you don't have to carry all of that as well so yeah drone enough for cooling yep yep it's just everything gets so much better once you put it on a drone. The only side effect is now it's being controlled either by a computer or by a human who is um, half a world away. Well, for I think for line combat, you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily have the half a world away thing unless you're, well, if you're doing an imperialist war against someone who doesn't have the capacity to resist, sure. In a parity partner conflict, uh, the level of jamming going on would be like so, uh, so it, yeah, it wouldn't be in the battle space. Like you would have, like they would have strategic electronic operations targeting your strategic electronic operations to throttle them and stuff like that. Yep, targeting satellites. Uh, yeah. One of the things that no one talks about is that everyone can just take out everyone else's satellites at any time, and then we'll be trapped here too. Oh God, that's that we'll is be able a to launch more... more satellites. Yeah, that is a horrifying uh, scenario. There is is the is basically caging the Earth in induced which, Kessler syndrome. Yep, uh, cascading intentional Kessler syndrome. Yeah, it's that intentional part that's the least scary part of that because it can also be unintentional, and that can start with one little screw going through a satellite that fragments and then is now all fragments. And creates more fragments. It hit more satellites. Yeah. It's yeah. 
I am shocked. Like I was shocked that the mirror lasted as long as it did. Once I was yeah. to understand. Yeah. Um, and what's insane is we put all enough of we put enough stuff up in space to do that in the span of like fifty years, even less. Yeah, I had a roommate once who did like um, it was like a sophomore level engineering paper about uh, possibly clearing Kessler syndrome. Yep. And uh, I mean, fuck if all of the options don't sound like <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> Yeah. God, that's that was that's that's such a, a an existential crisis too. Because not only are you, well, now you can't you you don't have the ability to go into space to do the things that you want to do, that you need to do, that are profitable, that are useful, but now you've also caged humanity in, and we will never get out. We will never journey, journey to the stars. Nothing. Sorry, kid. Stars are better off without us. You know, I can't argue with that. I absolutely can't argue experience. with that. <laughs> and you hadn't read it, so... Yeah. Anyway, that seems like a good place to stop here, especially since my headphone is now screaming at me about every minute or so that it's about to die. All right. So we'll do a second part on missiles, uh, going specifically over the... Uh, well, I guess not specifically missiles, but they're... The protection systems against missiles on our next episode. So, and drive systems. Um, we barely talked about drive systems. Yes, yes, drive systems and guidance systems as well. So, Ooh, so. nice. Oh right, yeah, well, that's uh, gonna be awesome. Yep. So thank you for joining me, Lonesome, and have a good night, guys. Love and solidarity. Yep. All right, and. 